you would take your Bible and turn to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. Now, if you will remember, we, uh, we've left off in John 4, uh, right in the middle of our conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. So we'll begin to pick, pick up the conversation again in verse 19. It says, And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called, the, who, who is called Christ when he or when that one comes he will declare all things to us and jesus said to her i who speak to you am he at this point his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman yet no one said what do you seek or why do you speak to her so the woman lifted left her water pots and went into the city and said to the men, Come see, come see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Let's stop right there. Well, let me, let me read verse 30. They, they all went out of the city and were coming to him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you are so gracious to us. Lord, you are a wonderful God. You are a God to be praised, a God to be worshipped. Lord, here we were, as the song said, we were, we were laying in sin and error, pining, and there was nothing we can do. And you came. You sent your Son to come and die for us. And to, to take care of the sin problem that, that we have through faith and repentance, Lord. We can have a changed life and we, we thank you for that. So here we stand, Lord. Redeemed sinners. Those who, those who desire to worship you and we desire to worship you in spirit and in truth. Lord, we desire to do what Your Word says. Lord, I pray that this passage today would give us clarity on our expression of worship, on what it is to worship. Lord, we, we just thank You for allowing us to be together. Thank You for allowing us to, to stand before You freed from our sinfulness. You are a wonderful and great God, and we thank You. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is my opinion, I believe that uh, the, 
the charismatic movement that you would see today. The charismatics have have almost redefined worship for us uh, in our day. They are setting a model, I believe, that is not right. Um, somehow they've become the model for what it is to to worship. And you're flick, flicking through the, the channels and you come upon a scene and, and then it's, it's, it's almost chaos. It's very excited. But what they've done is they've turned worship into an event, something that you do in a location at a specific time. It's turned into almost an experienced, an experience, something that, that you, you feel and you experience. Worship is more than coming to church. Worship is more than singing. We've, if we haven't learned anything, we've learned this, that you can sing, you can have music without worshiping. Just because you, we have music doesn't mean, automatically mean worship. There's chanting and swaying and everything seems to be worship these days. But worship in its essence is essentially just esteeming God for who He is. Esteeming God. Elevating Him. Lifting Him up. Adore Him. Some of the words that we've sung today. But it's in, in our day, what we do is we worship through service. That's, that's our worship today. The New Testament worship is through service. And I want you to see that today. Let me show you a couple of verses just to uh, solidify this. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, just real quick. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read them. Matthew chapter 4 where Satan was tempting Christ and, and uh, Satan takes uh, the Lord on, on this high mountain and he looks at the kingdoms of the world and he says, uh, all of this will be yours if you will, if you will bow down and it says, worship me. And Jesus' response, verse 10, Then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him. Now there's, there's a combination here of worship and serve. And really when we think of worship, that's the, that's the combination we ha- should have in our mind. Worship is serving the Lord. We worship through obedience. We esteem Him best by obeying Him. Look over in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Read another uh, verse. Verse uh, Chapter 6, verse 13. says, You shall fear only the Lord. That fear, that word fear is reverence and could be worship. And you shall worship Him. It uses the word worship, but it's the, the word could be translated. It might be translated in your uh, version. Worship could be translated, serve Him. So you should reverence the Lord only, and you shall worship or serve Him and swear by His name. A combination of worship and serving the Lord. Exodus chapter 20, when we got the, uh, the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20. says, Then uh, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. 
Again, the combination, this idea of worship and service is together. It's together. And here's, here's kind of the picture. God is being worshipped now by angels, a myriad of angels that are around His throne saying, holy, 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 and they are worshipping they are worshiping God. Man has a unique uh, ability, a man, a man has a unique position in this physical world to worship God in a very tangible, physical, visible way. And that's the way we should be worshiping. We should reflect God's character in the decisions that we make. We should reflect God's thoughts in the way we live out our life. And that is a worship to God. Now, let's go back to John chapter 4. This Samaritan woman brings up this idea of worship here. Now, Jesus had already confronted her sin. And this was significant because she was insignificant, really. Why was He even talking to her? was the attitude of the, uh, the disciples. She was a woman. Men didn't speak to women. She was a Samaritan. Jews didn't speak to Samaritans. They didn't have any dealings with the Samaritans. There's no reason to speak to her. Plus, I believe that this was a sinful woman. And Jesus had pointed that out in a very gracious way. He had graciously confronted her sins. Now, how do you know she was a sinful woman? Well, he mentions her adulterous relationships. Uh, she's had six husbands. And, and why get married after a while? Just live with the person. And Jesus says, no, that is wrong. That is sin. He confronts that sin. But there's also some other things here. Notice that she was alone. She was by herself. Now, that would have been an unnatural situation. She would have come with the other women of the village to draw water. They would have done that about the same time. And that was for conversation, but also for safety's sake. They would have been together. But also, she was coming probably further than they had. Because there were other wells that were closer to the city. And she even mentions that I don't have to come so far to get this water. Remember that? The conversation. What was happening? I believe she was being shunned by the other women. The other women didn't have any dealings with her. They wouldn't, they wouldn't uh, probably even speak to her. Because of how sinful she was. And she was probably used to that. In fact, when she goes back to the city, that uh, this part that we read in verse 29, who does she tell? Verse uh, 28, she tells the men. She probably has more relationships with the men than the women. She was shunned. Publicly, she probably had a terrible reputation. And Christ, Christ confronted that in a very gracious way. But I want you to get what happened there. When she was confronted, that's exact, that's what she remembers. So when she goes out and tells the, the men, what does she say? Come and see a man who have told me all the things that I have done. Boy, that peaked up their ears. Because some of those things that she had done was probably with some of the men that she was talking to. And here she was. The significant part of this conversation so far with Jesus was, was this fact that He knows me. He knows my heart. And that's one of the points that John wants us to know. That Jesus knows the heart of man. What's in the heart of man. And so uh, she is carrying around this weight, this burden 
uh, uh, this heavy guilt of sin, her reputation. And she, she knows that, and out of desperation, I believe, she asks this question, well, where do I worship? Now, that was the significant question of their day. Do the Jews have it right, or the Samaritans have it right? And Jesus has to clarify her thinking here, and the topic is, is worship. Where do I worship? Now, the primary thing you need to know about worship is how to get this guilt off me. Where do I sacrifice? And that's, uh, that's really kind of the question. But let's go back. Let's go back. Because she's asking this question, some commentary said, just to sidetrack uh, Christ. I don't think this is a sidetrack. I don't think this is what is going on. I think there's a a legitimate change in her heart. I think she has a desire now. Where do I worship? Where do I uh, unburden myself from this sin? And she probably knows. It's really of the Jews. She has to be confronted even on on this thing. But notice the bigger picture here. Chapter 4 is, in this section, this story is not primarily about worship. This is not a dissertation on worship. Now, Jesus does some teaching on worship, but the bigger picture here, the thing that we, uh, we need to see and we need to keep in mind is John is pointing out that Jesus is talking to this insignificant woman, this Samaritan woman who is insignificant, sinful, And she has no name. They don't give her a name. And I I just, I think what is being shown here is that Jesus is now opening the gospel up to the non-Jewish world. He is living out John 3.16, for God so loved the world. And I think that's what John wants us to see. That is, on his way to Galilee, he stops off and and this insignificant uh, woman um, and, and he begins to talk with her and, and it just reflects that, God, that Christ is taking the gospel to an insignificant, sinful, non-Jewish world. That's what's happening here. And that's what John wants us to see. But there's also some good, rich teaching on worship How this lady, this poor lady who has been ridden with guilt for so long, how to get this guilt off of her? How can she be a worshiper? How can she worship God with this guilt on her? Where is it that we are to worship? And she was at the base of this mountain. On one side was Mount Gerasim. On the other side, or or, uh, not too far really, was Jerusalem. They say that's where the Jews were to worship. Now, like I said, we need to know a little bit about worship in the Old Testament system so that we can understand what Christ is, is saying here. The main part of Old Testament worship was the, the sacrifice. It was the burnt offering. Something had to die, a death of an animal. There was also ceremonial cleansing. But you can understand why that had to be. That sin had to be dealt with before we can esteem God. Before we can uh, elevate Him. We have to deal with our sinfulness. And that was important. You had to go through the priest. There was actually another element to the Old Testament system was fasting. There was a part of that at least once a year. And 
the significant part of it was it had to be done in Jerusalem. It had to be a place. There was a lot of physical activity, a lot of physical form to their worship. That's what I'll call it, just the form of worship. But the essence of worship is still just the esteeming, esteeming God And you had to have both. There had to be an external getting rid of sin before Christ came. It was just sacrificing animals. But there was also that heart element, wasn't there? Now, without the form, doing the form in the wrong way, you would be guilty before the Lord. It would be like Cain offering his offering to the Lord that was not what God required. It was, he, he offered the best of his crops. They, they, some say, well, maybe his heart was pure, but I'm not even sure about that. But he's offering this to the Lord, and the Lord rejects it. So he had the wrong form. Nadab and Abihu, they had the wrong form. In Leviticus chapter 10, we see that they were offering offerings to the Lord, and the Lord consumed them. He, he killed them right there. They should have known better. They had the wrong form. It was so important to have the right form, to do the right thing, but it was just as important to have the right heart. Just as important to have the right heart. And Jesus was talking, by the, by the time Jesus' day, by the time Jesus came, they had the right form down. They knew that, but their hearts, Jesus was saying, your, your hearts are far from me. That's the Old Testament prophets, many of them. We're saying the the heart of Israel is just far from the Lord. They're doing the right things, but their heart was not right. The scribes and Pharisees, Jesus was talking about, externally you're doing all the right things, but internally your heart is not right. You're dead men. Now, so you have to have the physical form, the right thing that you're doing, but it has to become it has to come from a pure heart. What about New Testament? Uh, the New Testament. We see very little form talked about in the New Testament. The, there was no dissertation, no you know, large teaching about how, uh, what the form is in worship, how we are to worship. It's more about the essence. And here's what I want you to see in this passage. You see the point on the screen there. It says, when Christ ushered in the new covenant... It fundamentally changed the form, but form of worship, I should say, but not the essence of worship. It changed the form of worship, but not the essence of worship. And the question I want, you, want us to answer today is, how has the new covenant changed worship for God's people? I think we need to know the answer to that. There's four points that I just, uh, I'll bring out from this passage that will help us to see the change in worship, the change that has taken place. And I think we'll also see how we've, how we've strayed from that, how our thinking is beginning to change from that. Point number one. Point number one, and we'll move through these quickly. Worship is not limited neither to a location or a race of people. It's not, there's no limit to the location or the race of people. Christ came and, and this, is, this was his message to this lady. He says, verse uh, 21, he says, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem you shall worship the Father. What's he saying? Is that 
uh, Jesus is saying there's, there's coming a change. A change is going to take place where worship is not dependent upon a location. Jesus' message was, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. The kingdom was ready to be ushered in. Now, of course, Israel rejected that kingdom and their king. But no less, no less worship changed. And he says, uh, he says it's not going to be dependent upon location or race. For this lady to properly have worshipped, she should have become a Jew, a proselyte, so that then she could worship in Jerusalem. And then what would happen? The father, as referred to at the end of verse 21, is, becomes the common father, the father of us all. And not just to the Jews, but the, the world. The, uh, the new covenant really doesn't change much except the ceremony, the sacrificial law, the, the getting rid of the sin element. Now, here's, here's what happened. And the new covenant came in. Israel rejected their Messiah. And uh, uh, Jesus had offered that. They were rejected. And, and so God says, okay, I'm going to set Israel aside and I'm going to turn to the church. And I'm going to apply the new covenant that we see from the Old Testament, the ending of the Old Testament, I'm going to apply that to the church, and it's going to make Israel jealous. I'm going to come in, and I'm going to reach down in man's heart, I'm going to bring out that stony heart, and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. A heart that is desirous to worship God. It's a fundamental change that took place. It had to take place. Then, this Because of this new covenant, worship didn't depend upon a location. It didn't have to be in Jerusalem. It didn't have to be through the race of Israel, the race of this people. It didn't have to be through a particular nation. God opened it up to the Gentiles. Gentiles, too, can worship. Now, that's a a marvelous message to this lady, a non-Jew. Exactly what she needed to hear. Now, there's a principle that I want us to to draw here. I think there's a trend to put worship back into this building right here. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, really, there shouldn't be a problem with it. But we, we tend to think of worship as an event, as something, well, we come to church and do. It's almost like a concert kind of feel. And that's not... That's not really the biblical understanding of worship. And when we think of worship in a location, in a building here, what we're failing to do is really worship out there. We are to worship everywhere, in every place, at every time. In our bedrooms, in our cars, in our offices, in our kitchens. There's, there's no limits to our worship now. He has changed our heart. We don't have to go through the sacrificial system. We have a changed and renewed heart. Point number two. Point number two. Worship remains a matter of the heart. It remains a matter of the heart. Look at verse 23. But an hour is coming. So he, he comes back to this phrase. An hour is coming now. And now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, in spirit and in truth, this new covenant 
This new covenant changed the form of worship, but a heart was still uh, essential. Worship had to come from the heart. The substance of worship was in the heart. Now he's talking about, he says the, the Spirit and in truth. This Spirit here is not the Holy Spirit, but he's talking about the Spirit, the, the real person within the man. Not the externals, but the real person within the man, the, the, the inner person, not the externals. And it's not the Holy Spirit. And here's the, here's the I think here's where we go wrong today is we kind of just sit back and just wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon us and then we worship. That's kind of the model that's being put out there. And they would point to John the Baptist. Or they would point to the day of Pentecost. And what was happening there but it was, was not normative for the rest of the church. It was a transition period where God was saying, here, look at this. I am at work in these people. I am at work in this situation. And he's verifying his work, his message, his messenger. And uh, we, we don't really need the prompting of the Holy Spirit necessarily per se to come and, and worship. We can look. We can look at a tree and we can see and, and just esteem God and just say, Lord, you are so great. We can, we can look at a child singing. And we just say, Lord, you're so amazing. You made these kids. They're so cute. And we can esteem God. And that's what worship is. The, the, the essence of worship is from the heart. Literally, worship means to prostrate oneself. Prostrate oneself before a person. And actually, literally, to, to get down and kiss their feet. Or the hem of their garment, or their, their, the ground even. The Persians used the word, the Greeks used the word, talking about their deity of their kings. But it was, it was to fall down, literally to fall down in obeisance, and prostrate oneself to, in reverence. It was to, to make oneself low to, in order to esteem the other person, the, the, the king. That was the idea. And those things are to be done in the heart. That is worship. Now it takes it may take on different forms, but that that is worship. When we worship, even in our minds, we are to be lowering ourselves and exalting our God. And that takes a change of heart, and that's what we've had. You say, well, what about David in the Old Testament? <clears throat> if you would turn over to second. Uh, First Samuel, First Samuel chapter four. Um, actually, we'll start there. First Samuel chapter four. We have a, a, a terrible situation for the Israelites. What had happened is they had used the ark and uh, in in a battle situation, and the Philistines came and and took the ark. They kidnapped the ark. They took the ark. Now they had problems with that. And they started trying to get rid of it, and they would take it from one city to the next city, one place to the next place, and they, the Lord just plagued each city, each place it went, and it had terrible, they had, a, uh, they had a terrible time. They wanted to get rid of the thing, didn't know exactly how to, how to do that. But eventually, David was able to come in, and uh, the Lord allowed a victory over the Philistines. And actually, uh, if you, it's 2 Samuel chapter 6. What we see is David's trying to move this ark and get it back in its rightful place in the tabernacle. 
And um, in chapter 6, he begins to move it. And you know the story. He does a foolish thing. He doesn't move it in the right way. He was careless. He was a little flippant. And uh, what happened is Uzziah, uh, the, it, was, it was about to fall off the cart. And Uzziah put his hand up there to stop it. He was, his heart was right. I mean, everything was right. Every, why would this happen? But the Lord struck him dead right there. And boy, it just confused David. In fact, David, uh, we see in chapter uh, 6, uh, verse 8, that David was very angry. Very angry against God. David's heart was not even right. And uh, it was actually during a big celebration and things were happening, things were good, and all of a sudden you kill this man and they just stopped it right where it was. They just put the cart and, well, I'll let you read it for yourself. And here's what happened, though, and here's where it comes in to worship in verse, um, in verse 14. In verse 14, David says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it the right way. And he gets his heart right before the Lord. And he offers sacrifices. Even before he, he moves the cart, he moves the cart and he offers another sacrifice. And, and, uh, and it's working. The, the cart was moving in uh, with the... Uh, or, or they were moving it the right way and it was moving into Jerusalem right where the, uh, the ark should be. And so David was rejoicing. In verse 14, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. And David was, was uh, wearing a linen ephod. It was his, it was his uh, kingly robe. And he throws it off. And he's practically naked there. In verse 13, um, and so it was that when the, the bearer of the ark of the Lord was, had gone six paces, they offered a sacrifice. They made sure to take care of this sin problem. They learned their lesson. And David was dancing before the Lord. Um, oh, I'm sorry, verse... 15, so David and all the house in Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouting and sounds of trumpet. This was a victory march. God had given them victory over the Philistines. And then in verse 16, then it happened that the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. This is right where it's supposed to be. This was in Jerusalem. David's wife looks out. Michael, the daughter of Saul, looks out of the window and saw David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she was, she despised him in his heart. He was worshiping. And he tries to, uh, tries to talk with her. If you look over in uh, verse uh, 21, uh, David said to Michael, it was before the Lord, it was before the Lord, who chose me above your father and above all of his house to appoint me ruler over the people of Israel over, uh, over Israel. Therefore, I was celebrating before the Lord. The, the context here is victory over their enemies. The context is, is a celebration. This was great. Now, he learned his lesson. He had to take care of the sin problem, but they were able to bring it in and put it in its rightful place. Here's what I see today. I see that people want to use this to develop their whole philosophy of worship on this passage. This was not formal worship that you would see in the, in the, in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. This is a victory celebration. This is what was going on. It was, it was a, in the context, it was just was victory. This would be more akin to um, the day after World War II in New York City. It was just a victory march. Everybody was excited. Everything was happening. It was good. And I often wonder... How many people gave glory to God 
because of the victory over uh, in World War II, the victory that we had. It really, the lesson to be learned here, what was happening was this was sin had been taken care of. This was a um, this was personal worship, not corporate worship. It was personal worship, and it was in a public forum. I mean, he was he was just giving glory to God for what God had accomplished, what God had done. This is not any way justifying wild behavior in our church services. This is just not there. This would be more akin to um, a football player making the catch and, and, and successful. And then he turns and he gives glory to God and he's celebrating. That, that's really what it is. It's close to, to Tebowing, what we would say today. Tebow makes a pass. He, he, he bows down and he, and he just prays right there. Lord, you get the glory. Or these guys that raise up. And Lord, you get the glory. That's, that's kind of the idea. That, that's what was going on. How do we apply this to our own life? Listen, worship is to be done out there. It's to be done everywhere. It's to be done everywhere. And it's to be done by giving the Lord the glory in every situation. In all of our situations. When we have victories... You have opportunity to tell people what the Lord has done in your life. You say, praise the Lord. Look what the Lord has done. That's the, that's the point here. That's what we can take away from this passage. Number three, uh, worship is not limited to a location. It is a matter of the heart. And number three, worship can be done in ignorance, but is not acceptable to God. Look at verse 22. It says, you worship what you do not know. Now, they're worshiping. They're on the wrong mountain, and they're worshiping what they do not know. Now, the Samaritans, like I said last uh, a couple of weeks ago, they were half-breeds. They were brought in uh, generations ago to, to uh, kind of intermingle with the, the Hebrew culture and to become one. And they had done their part, but the Jews said, no way. They're not going to intermingle with these people, and rightfully so. So you have these... Samaritans. They wanted to be a part of that worship. I don't know what was the motivation there, but, but the Jew says no. They, they refused to become proselytes, so they just said, we're going to worship on this mountain, Mount Gerasim. And that's what they did. And their worship took on very much the same form as the, the Jewish worship. But Jesus said, you're wrong. You worship what you do not know. You worship in ignorance. Salvation is from the Jews, he says. Worship, worship must be done. Listen, worship must be done in the reality of God, of who God is and God's truth and God's word. It must be done that way. Truth is important. It's important. No matter how cool it looks on TV... There's a warning for us here that God's worship must be done on God's terms. It it, it could be sincere, and I'm sure this lady was sincere. She genuinely wanted to get this sin, uh, uh, this guilt off of her back. Where do you do that? Well, they they had been worshiping, and it didn't work. Their worship was not acceptable to God. And here's what I see today. All this wild worship that we see on TV and 
this wild behavior in church services, many times and most times, I believe, it comes from people whose doctrine are so skewed that it's not right. And we would, we would say to them, you worship what you do not know. They proclaim, they're, they're not proclaiming the truth, and therefore their model of worship is not, to be, is not to be set as a model for us. It's not to be the example for the world today. And I'm afraid that's what it has become, and it infiltrates the, the church. We must know the God that we're worshiping. We must know His Word We must have a proper understanding of these things. We must have right doctrine. Truth matters. Truth is important. Let me try to illustrate this. The other day we were watching my son play basketball. On the other team, the little boy grabs the ball. He he intercepts the ball, and and it was great. And and he goes up, and he puts the ball in, and uh, a little layup. And he's excited, man. He's just, you know, bursting at the seam, just excited. But he makes the ball in the wrong basket. It was not according to truth, was it? (laughs) In his world, in his mind, it was great. Man, he was taking a victory lap. And then they have to tell him, you just scored two points for the other team. It was wrong. We have to be careful. Uh, People worship in ignorance, and that that worship is not acceptable to the Lord. It is not a model for us. I saw a a video, just a video clip, I think it was on YouTube. It was it, Baby Worshipper was the title, and that kind of caught my attention. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of a wild church service. The only thing that you could see, though, was this baby. She was standing with her uh, hand on the pew, and uh, she had her head bowed, and you, you kind of thought she was asleep at first, and she was kind of swaying back and forth. And, but every once in a while she would kind of look up and open one eye and see what everybody else was doing, and then she would bow her head again and sway and... Baby worship. Now listen, th- this little baby is maybe 18 months old. Maybe two years old. But that is not according to truth. Wasn't, th- this little baby wasn't really worshiping God. It was not according to truth. Baby worship. I mean, you know, it's good that we teach our children to pray and to, to do these acts, do these things of worship. But the heart has to be there, right? It has to be there. We, we cannot just adapt this wild kind of worship in, in our services and think that God is pleased with that just because it's sincere, just because it's exciting, just because it's... Now, next week, next week, we're going to tackle corporate worship. What does it mean to worship? Let me go through this last point, though. Worship is now the dominant characteristic of God's people. Look at this. This is so beautiful. This is so good. Verse 23 An hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers, worshipers, the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks. He's wanting these worshipers, seeks to be His worshipers. Listen, they worship. Worship is so much a characteristic of their life that they're called worshipers. They're called worshipers. Now, you can say, uh, you know, when you, uh, when you see someone that just constantly lies, what do you say? He's a liar. Or a bully. He's a bully. That's a label. That labels that we put on people. Or he's a mean person. 
Listen, worship should become so much a part of us that it's part of our identity. It's part of what we do. It's a part of who we are. You say, how does this look? The whole New Testament reveals what it is to be a worshiper of God and how that is to look in your life. And it's very much a part of obedience. And Christ said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Let me flesh this out just real quick. It won't take too long. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You know this passage. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. There's the sacrifice. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service, your religious duty of worship. Your spiritual service of... He's combining the two concepts of worship and service. We have become worshipers. It's not just here. It's everywhere. We're giving God glory and praise. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. Another passage that we have to, we have to notice. For by Him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. This physical world was created for Him, for His glory. It was created for Him. If we look over in the same book, uh, Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, with all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and singing with thanksgiving in your heart to God, whatever you do in word or deed. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God. Our lives, our worship, everything that we do is to be done in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God. It's a, it's a worship. It's our whole life is worship. Everything is worship. Everything that we do. One last verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Says, says this, a very quick verse, very easy verse. You, you know this verse. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Listen, that is worship. That's worship. You mean the most mundane things that we do is eating and drinking? Yeah, even that brings glory to God. Yes. The answer is yes. Everything you do. Shaving? Some way, you've got to turn this daily routine of your life of eating, drinking, the most mundane things you do into some way that it glorifies God, that it brings God glory. And you have to work that out. We'll talk about that next week a little bit. Whether you eat or drink, every little thing glorifies God. We should be doing things with excellence. Listen, here's the principle here. Life is worth living because we are now worshipers. We're worshipers. That gives so much meaning to life. We can bring glory to God in everything. We reflect Him in a very physical, tangible way. Oh, let me say this. If we had all the money in the world, and if we could conquer the sleep problem, we never have to sleep, and we could conquer the eat problem. We never have to eat, and we just all we had to do was sit around and just praise God all the time. 
let me shock you and say that God would not be pleased with that. The angels do that. God wants us to be active, to be living out His His life through Him or a life through Him that's living physically being seen by everyone in the world. That is worship. That is giving glory back to God. That is reflecting who He is. That is esteeming Him and lowering ourselves. We, we give up our lives as an act of worship. And, and the Old Testament, or the New Testament, the Old Testament calls this just bearing His image. We are image bearers of the Almighty God, the living and true God. God has given us a heart of worship. He has reached down and changed your heart, taking out a stony heart, put in a fleshy heart, a desire to to serve and worship Him. He's given us a heart to worship. Paul said it like this, you need to be praying, pray without ceasing. You need to rejoice always. You need to give thanks in everything. That's worship. That's worship. Our whole lives are given to worship. And I'll just end with this. Are you characterized by this idea of worship? Is it so much a part of your life? Do you give glory to God in every part of your life that is so much a part of your life that you're just... Somebody said, man, he just is, he's a worshiper. He's a worshiper of God. Or do we just say, well, I'm going to, to church to worship? Now, there's a place for that. There's a place for corporate worship. There's a place and time when we get together. and We'll talk about that. But it's as a result of our worshiping all the time that we can come in and enjoy worship together. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for clarifying some of these things in our own mind. Father, thank you for calling us to be worshipers. Thank you for changing our hearts so that the sin problem, we can confess our sins and get it out of the way and repent of our sins and then immediately worship you everywhere we are, in every place. What an amazing thing that we, we, we don't have to carry our sin burden around with us like this poor lady who, who was confused about the issues. But Lord, we can repent. We can take care of our sins. And we can turn and we can worship you, the true and living God. We thank you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.